0: From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Seren. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Roswell investigator Thomas Carey is here. He's the co-author, along with Don Schmidt, of a brand new book on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And Thomas will be here for the full two hours. The true nature of what actually crashed in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947 remains classified. Only a selected few have ever had access to the truth. But what happened to the remnants of that crash is shrouded in even greater mystery. What began in the high desert of New Mexico ended at Wright-Patterson, an ultra-top-secret Air Force base in Dayton, Ohio. The physical evidence of extraterrestrial visitation was buried deep within this nuclear stronghold. How tragic that such seismic news should be kept from the people of the world, pieces of history now quickly dwindling into oblivion as the last of the secret keepers passes on. Thomas J. Carey has a master's degree in anthropology from California State and has also received a fellowship to pursue a Ph.D. in anthropology at the University of Toronto. Thomas became interested in UFOs while in high school and rekindled that interest in 1986 when he became the MUFON State Section Director for Southeastern Pennsylvania. Since 1991, Tom's research has focused solely on the so-called Roswell Incident. He is the co-author, along with Don Schmidt, of UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson, Eyewitness Accounts from the Real Area 51. Thomas Carey, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you?
1: Nice to be with you, Richard. Let's have at it.
0: All right. First of all, we have to uh, note, of course, the book is dedicated to Stanton Friedman. He wrote the foreword to UFO Secrets inside Wright-Patterson. Last week on the program, your co-author, Don Schmidt, and I, uh, we uh, we did an, an hour tribute to Stanton. Let me just get your, your thoughts on uh, the passing of this giant ufologist recently.
1: Well, he certainly was a giant. He was the go-to guy when uh, anybody wanted to do like a documentary. Since the nineteen late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, he was the point person for all things UFO. And without Stanton, we wouldn't be talking here tonight about Roswell or uh, the UFO secrets at uh, Wright-Patterson because when he was uh, giving a talk, down in Louisiana, I think it was Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 1978, somebody said, that one of the producers of the show said, you ought to talk to this fellow, um, who was Jesse Marcel, Uh, you ought to talk to him, because he says he handled pieces of wreckage from a UFO, and uh, on his way out, Stanton called him, and thus began the civilian investigation of Roswell. Without that phone call, there's no Roswell story. Remarkable. So, so Stanton, uh, he is one of the few I'll have to say uh, that actually made a living <laughs> out of UFOs with all the speeches he gave. You know, and uh, a lot of people go into UFO. Uh, oh, I'm going to have a magazine or something. It, it, you know, but Stanton was totally dedicated to uh, quote unquote UFOs are real. That was his first big message, and uh, every summer or every July, uh, Don Schmidt and I we go down to Roswell, and uh, they have the UFO festival down there. And uh, Stanton is at a table right next to us, and it's not just not going to be the same this year. It, uh, we had him, we had him do the forward for our book, and we dedicated this book to Stanton. The one we're talking about yes, tonight. Yes. Yes. And it was just uh, we didn't we didn't know anything, you know, that anything was uh, amiss. And uh, it uh, it I mean, to, I, I don't want to use the word fortuitous, but it was uh, ironic that uh, this book we're talking about tonight was dedicated to Stanton, and he actually wrote the forward to it. So. Very uh he will be severely missed. I know it won't be the same down there in uh next month without him,
0: right right
1: and uh, I looked upon him as a colleague. We were both on the same side of history, and uh we were i guess uh colleagues more than competitors because we both believed in the Roswell case uh, was a case of extraterrestrial visitation we disagreed on a few not many uh a few things a witness or two uh mj12 papers and things like that but that that never stood in the way of anything cuz uh i'm sure he disagreed with us but we both recognize and this goes for don as well that uh we're on the same side uh fighting the battle uh, next to one another instead of against one another.
0: Sure. I've, I've heard you and Don talk about how when it came to the Roswell investigation, you, you were and, and are in a race with the Undertaker because not only the witnesses are, are gone, now many of the children of the witnesses yeah. are, are getting up there in age and many we of them even, have
1: passed on. We even have some grandchildren that have passed on.
0: Right. Right.
1: Yes. Uh, I, I would estimate uh, as we're talking here that the 99% of the firsthand witnesses, the participants and that sort of thing, uh, are either gone or at that stage in life where you, you can't interview them. Right. You know? Right. Uh, they're, so they're, they're just gone. And I'm sure there are a few still out there that have something to say, but we don't know who they are. And they're not coming forward.
0: And likely they'll take what they know to the grave. Uh, But is it, would this be a fair assessment that the, the trail in Roswell is, as we say, you know, you're in a race with the Undertaker. It's, it's almost cold, but now you can pick it up at Wright Patterson Airfield, which you, which you have done with, with Don and your work.
1: Yes. This, this book we have out tonight came out about two weeks ago. And, uh, it's like, The the crash and recovery was the first stage or the first chapter. The delivery and what happened to it after it got to Wright-Patterson or Wright Field back then is the second stage of the case. First stage was the crash, recovery. The second stage is what went on at Wright-Patterson after the bodies and the uh, wreckage uh, were delivered there. That's what this book is about.
0: Right. Now, it's interesting because Wright Patterson, like Area 51, is, is shrouded in secrecy. But unlike Area 51, we actually know a fair bit about the, the origins of Wright Patterson, its, its beginnings, and you, you talk about its, its early history uh, in UFO Secrets Insight, Wright Pat. Just, just tell us a little bit about its origins uh, involving the Wright brothers and so forth.
1: Yes. Uh, uh, first of all, if you and I do this when I give a talk. I say, how many of you in the audience have ever heard of Area 51? And all the hands go up. How many of you have heard of Wright-Patterson? And very few hands go up. But uh, Wright-Patterson was um, basically Area 51 before there was an Area 51. The, uh, the Wright brothers uh, had a bicycle shop in uh, Dayton, Ohio, and they started working on this newfangled contraption called an aeroplane. And, uh, of course, they had the first flight down in North Carolina at Kitty Hawk, somewhere around 1903. And so they uh, they bought a stretch of land outside of Dayton, Ohio, and a Huffman Plain. It was a flat area. And uh, so that's where they started developing, uh, continuing the development of their airplane. But they lost control of the uh, of the landmass there uh, with World War One. When World War One came along, the U.S. government confiscated the Huffman plane, and they put up another. Uh, uh, they put up an airport. Now I don't want to go through all the names no, no. of because of, they went through so many different names. For these two air airfields, uh, uh, it was Wilbur Wright Field, and then it, the other one was Orville. Uh, see, I'm already mixed up. But <laughs> they, there were two, there were two locations. One was Wright Field, and the other was uh, Patterson, which was named after a World War One flyer who was killed uh, landing there. And so you have Wright Field and Patterson Field, and uh, it really came to prominence uh, during World War II. During World War One, it was more like a supply depot where they supplied a lot of things to the nascent uh, Air Corps, Air Corps as it was called. But the World War Two comes along, and it really expands. And uh, they have divisions there. They have intelligence. They have engineering. They have supply. It was basically the heart and soul of the Air Corps, or as in World War II, it was called the Army Air Forces. And it was the beating heart of the, the Air Air Corps. And part of that was uh, uh, they, they had a division called the Air Materiel Command. And that was divided up into intelligence and engineering. So what they wanted to get their hands on were uh, crashed or uh, captured Axis aircraft, Messerschmitts, Mitsubishis, and things like that to see what made them go and how we could uh, defeat them in battle. And uh, that was the job. Of uh, the foreign technology division. Now, the foreign technology division went through many name changes, and my head spins when I try to try to keep track of them. But we'll just call it T2
0: at T2 at this time, wasn't
1: it? Yes, it was T2. Yes. Then it became, I think, ATIC. Then it became FTD, and it's I think it's NASIC now. But I I I could be wrong on that. And I won't, I won't apologize if I'm wrong because they went through so many name changes, but it was uh, intelligence and the Messerschmitts and Mitsubishi Zeros, uh, went to, there was, there was a hangar there, hangar 23.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That's where all of the foreign technology went to try to reverse engineer. Uh, tear them apart to find out what made them tick, uh, how we could defeat them. So uh, when this, uh, you know, and it, it keeps expanding and uh, uh, intelligence was there and uh, it was the uh, heart and soul of the Army Air Forces during World War II and then, then the U.S. Air Force when it became a separate branch and uh September of nineteen forty-seven, right after the Roswell crash.
0: Right, right. We get into so, the summer of forty-seven, uh, the 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 UFO panic, as you call it, uh, or the Pentagon panic in nineteen forty-seven. Yeah. Um, at that point, uh, was was uh, General uh, Nathan Twining? Was he stationed at? Uh, was he in charge of T two at Wright Pat?
1: Yes, uh, General Nathan. Uh, I forget his middle initial. Uh, oh, Nathan F... I think it's F-20. Anyway, he was in charge of uh, T2 Air Materiel Command. Uh, I don't know. He had either three or four stars. He ultimately became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, with four stars. And uh, we were uh, good friends with his son, Nathan Jr., who really... Uh, uh, was uh, 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 taken with our work on Roswell, and so Nate Junior became a good friend of ours. He passed away, I want to say, two years ago. Right. Uh, uh, so yes, uh, Air Material Command was uh, uh, FTD, Foreign Technology.
0: I'm just so sorry. Uh, go ahead. I was. No, go ahead. I was going to ask you about the timing because of the Twining memo, which is held out as, you know, one of the great sort of smoking gun documents. Here is uh, Nathan Twining talking about these craft flat on the bottom, domed on the top, the aerial maneuvers. They can, you know, outmaneuver anything that we have. I don't think it's a, uh, you know, a, a Soviet uh, craft. What could it be? He's sort of reaching out asking. Now, is he, is, if he's at, uh, right, Pat, at this point, and he's seeing probably, you know, crash debris from the latest and the best, you know, uh, um, aircraft from our adversaries. Uh, I'm just wondering about the timing of that. Did that memo come out before Roswell, after Roswell?
1: Oh, that was, uh, September of 1947, so it was a month or so after uh, the, the crash, yes. Uh, he was responding to a letter or memo, whatever you want to call it from, uh, uh, Brigadier General Shulgin in Washington because he was getting, uh, he was in intelligence in Washington with the, uh, Air Corps, Army Air Corps, soon to be U.S. Air Force. He was getting a lot of questions about, uh, flying saucers as they called them back then. And so, uh, he wrote to, uh, T2 in, uh, uh Wright Patterson. What, hey, what got, what can you guys tell me? You know, I, I got these people on my back. They want to know about this. I, 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 I don't know what to tell them. And so that's what uh, Twining was responding to. He, we, he gave a list of things that he says, it, uh, the flying saucers are not something fictitious. They were real. And then he gave a list of reasons of their characteristics. And that was the so-called Twining Memo, which went to Brigadier General Shugan in intelligence in Washington. Well, I mean, that's
0: the timing is important if it's September 47 and Roswell July 47. And so at that point, one would suspect the crash debris had already arrived at wright Pat and Twining might have already had a chance to look at it.
1: Well... We have stories that uh, Twining, when the crash happened, right after it happened, he flew, whatever his itinerary was, he flew to Alamogordo, New Mexico, to view the wreckage and the, the, some of the bodies. And uh, so that's we don't have that part nailed down, but there's a, a number of witnesses who said that Twining went to Alamogordo for a couple of days right when the crash happened but uh, we do know as for fact now that uh, the wreckage went to right field as it was called back then uh, the, uh right after the crash this would be it the, it started um, the first flight to Washington was a special flight on July 6th 1947 this is before all the wreckage is even coming into the into the base uh, it's part of the stuff that Jesse Marcel brought back and uh, Washington wanted to get a look at this stuff asap so on the 6th there's a special flight to Washington with some of the wreckage so they got it we know they got it on the 6th but the stuff started going to right Field starting on the 7th and the 8th, and the ninth. That includes the bodies. So that first week, uh, a little more than a week uh, of July, uh, most of that stuff is already at right right field. So uh, Twining absolutely had a look at it.
0: Now, in terms of the chronology here, now um, Jesse Marcel, he originally accompanied uh, the, the wreckage to Fort Worth, correct? Yes. And then, didn't Roger Ramey... Unofficially, at least officially, cancel, saying we're not. You're not going to Wright Pat. Uh, it was supposed to go from Fort Worth to Wright Pat, and then officially, at least on the record, he said, "No, we're not flying to Wright Pat."
1: Yes, that was all histrionics, uh, Richard. Uh, he had the press there, plus some others, and uh, uh, they had the balloon on the floor, and there were all these rumors about little bodies and uh, flying saucer, and he canceled that flight. It's we got the stuff here. There's no need for that flight. Cancel that flight. Well, it never was canceled. We know that's a fact because all the stuff did go there. But there's a uh, a telex from the FBI uh, from the FBI office in Dallas that they learned from uh, Ramey's uh, one of his high officers there. I don't know if it's the uh, chief of staff or the a uh, public information officer, a guy named Kurt, and, uh, the FBI learned from him that the flight was not canceled. And it's all in a memo from uh, FBI Dallas to the director with a copy to Cincinnati that uh, the fact that it was canceled is not true. That the flight is on its way to right field. So we have a document that shows that. Plus we know from eyewitnesses that it uh, arrived uh at the right field at that time uh
0: one of those witnesses would be uh captain oliver pappy henderson who actually piloted the, the, the plane correct
1: yes he uh pappy henderson had the uh, second flight this the so-called second body flight plus some wreckage july 9 uh, no, I'm sorry, he had the first, uh, the first body flag on July 8th, where uh, one of the C-54, uh, aircraft that flew directly from Roswell to Wright Field without stopping in between. Uh, he flew wreckage and he flew bodies. And the bodies upset him because he didn't, according to a uh, uh, he told a friend that uh, he he didn't like dead things he just didn't like dead things and he only glanced at the bodies that were on the floor inside the hangar he said they had big heads and uh, uh slanted eyes and they just made him he started getting queasy but he saw enough that they, they weren't human and uh his flight we have uh We've identified one crewman on his flight, and uh, it went straight to right field on July 8, 1947. This is the same day as that uh, press conference in General Ramey's office where he canceled the flight. Pappy Henderson's flying to right field, and... Uh, of course, the press didn't know about that. They were, they were uh, thinking of the Marcel flight because Marcel was originally ticketed to go to, from Fort Worth to Wright Field, but uh, Ramey canceled that flight, or so he said. Right. But it, meanwhile, all that's taking place, Pappy Henderson is already flying directly to Wright Field from Roswell. The press didn't know about that.
0: Thomas, we'll uh, take a quick time out. We'll pick it up on the other side. UFO secrets inside Wright-Patterson. Eyewitness accounts from the real Area 51. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us.
1: Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This
0: is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. We are back with Thomas Carey, co-author, along with Don Schmidt, of UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson Eyewitness Accounts from the real Area 51. We were talking about Pappy Henderson, uh, who piloted the plane... Uh, containing the Roswell UFO crash uh, debris and bodies to Wright Pat, and you mentioned Building Twenty Three, and uh, I want to talk about. You know, this is part of the uh, the mythos of of Wright Pat. Is uh, right. we we all talk about Hangar Eighteen, Hangar Eighteen, but there isn't a Hangar Eighteen. Um, where did that? How did that get started? That Hangar Eighteen.
1: Uh, that was one of the interesting things about doing this book was that uh, we finally solved what happened with that hangar 18 story. And uh there was never a hangar 18 per se. But what happened was in uh at on the base there was what they called the building 18 clump complex. It consisted of buildings building 18 through 18 uh 18G nine buildings there. In that complex there's one hangar, hangar 23. That's remember now that's that hangar where all that back engineering stuff went. Right. During World War 2. One hangar in that that complex and it's hangar 23. So, where and when did that uh, could that be hangar 18? Could that be the hangar 18? That, uh, people were talking about. So we did a back, uh, backtracking. And, uh, I first went to the, the, uh, book, The Roswell Incident by, uh, William Moore and, uh, Charles Berlitz. Actually, it was Stanton Friedman, but the uh, stand didn't have a big name, I guess, at that time. I don't know, but they, the Roswell incident meant, men, mentioned nothing about a Hangar 18. But I remembered that there was this movie called Hangar 18 that came out the same year as the book. Right. 1980.
0: Darren McGavin.
1: Darren McGavin. No, no, no. Uh, the guy, the guy, Man from Uncle. Uh, uh, uh,
0: Robert, Robert Vaughn. Robert Vaughn. Robert yeah. Vaughn. But and McGavin Robert, was in it, too.
1: Was he in it, too? Yes, so I'm sitting there watching. I remember I was sitting there watching Johnny Carson one night. No one comes, Darren, uh, um, Robert Vaughn. And Johnny says, well, how you doing, Robert? Uh, well, what's up? He said, well, I just finished the movie. What's it called? Hangar 18. But the thing was, when he said that, I knew what he was talking about. So I must have heard it from somebody earlier, but I didn't know where. So we contacted the Uh, screenwriter slash director of the movie Hangar 18, fellow by the name of James Conway. We said, okay, Jim, where did, where did you hear this Hangar 18 thing? He says, Oh, I heard that. It was in, it was in being talked about. It was being talked about, bandied about in the early 1970s. So I'm thinking, Oh my goodness, what, what is that? So that, that didn't lead me to the promised land. So, I'm an Air Force veteran. Uh I get the uh Air Force magazine. Uh, it's I think it's bi-monthly. It's not monthly, but I I subscribe to the Air Force magazine. And they did a story oh, a couple of years ago about UFOs, uh, how the Air Force was uh uh they did a really good job. They were they didn't deserve all the uh uh Columny that they uh, Got from their handling of UFOs But in that story They talked about Roswell And they said uh, Hangar 18 This fellow in Florida This professor in Florida Started talking about Hangar 18 Where all the bodies were stored And I said Oh That's right And what that was uh, Richard I remembered now that in 1974, I was just about to get on a plane to go to Toronto to start my four years of schooling there. Mm -hmm. And all the talk was from this so-called Professor Robert Spencer Carr talking about Hangar 18 and all these uh, flying saucer bodies. That's where they were stored. I remember that like it was yesterday, but I had forgotten it. It started with this fellow in Florida. He was a no professor, he had a high school education, but he he was like a UFO buff. And uh he got Florida is a great uh, retirement place for military, right? Sure. And he heard the stories about this hangar 18 at Wright Patterson from all these retirees. That would come up to him after he would give a talk. They go, I know, I know this. They up at right, right Patterson. They got this hangar eighteen. Where all, where, all these bodies are stored. So that's where that the, the the story got into the public domain. But why was it called Hangar Eighteen if there is no Hangar Eighteen? Well, in the book, which I'm holding, <laughs> <laughs> in the book we have a schematic of Area B at right. Patterson, where it shows the Building 18 complex, and there's that one hangar in Building 18 in, in, in uh, that complex, Hangar 23. They were, it's commonly referred to as Hangar 18 because it's in that 18 complex.
0: Right, right.
1: All those buildings in there are Building 18A, 18B, so and so and so and so. So they just started calling it Hangar 18. But it's really. Uh, Hangar 23, but common parlance, it's Hangar 18. And interesting enough, right across the back alley from Hangar 18, uh, 1823, there's building 18F. And that's the cold, that used to be the cold storage building be- before they had air ah. conditioning. And that's where the bodies were kept. Because we have a guy that used to work uh, in a building uh, uh, near there, he said, on hot summer days, you got the smell coming out of there. It smelled like dead fish
0: right know? and formaldehyde
1: and formaldehyde right right and because that because the 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 vents inside open to the outside, and this is before air conditioning and he said, Oh, it smelled like formaldehyde. Another fellow said it smelled like dead fish." So, the proximity of the two the back engineering of the wreckage and the storage of the bodies early on right there meanwhile Depending
0: meanwhile though the, uh, between the the Conway uh, screenplay and this uh, car gentleman down in Florida they gave uh, the uh, the folks at Wright Pat kind of cover because every time a researcher or a tourist started poking around saying, "Can I see hangar 18?" they could honestly say there is no such building.
1: And there never was. <laughs> yes. Yes.
0: Yes. I want to
1: talk, right, but it it's a it's a play on words. They should they should say, "Okay, show what's the building where the bodies were kept." In fact, we have in the book uh, we have people who talk to uh To workers at Wright Patterson, uh, they would, and they told them. They said, "Yes, the the bodies are here, but I can't. I I I don't know where they're at. Uh, They 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 admit now that the bodies were there or are there when they were questioned. But but they would say, I don't know where. I don't know where, but they're here."
0: Wow. Listen, when we come back, I want to delve into the foreign technology division a little bit. We'll talk about uh attempts to reverse engineer we'll talk about Colonel Philip Corso uh Uh-oh. and and his testimony and whether these are whether th- his testimony was credible and uh, uh we'll get uh, further into uh the uh, building 18 complex hangar 23 and Wright Patterson Air Force Base my guest Thomas Carey author, co-author of UFO Secrets Inside Right Pat Eyewitness Accounts from the Real Area 51 Back with more of The Conspiracy Show My name is Richard Serrett Don't go away Question everything This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett Thomas Carey, co-author, UFO Secrets Inside. Wright Patterson, eyewitness accounts from the real Area 51. Uh, there's a great quote in the book, and I can't remember who it's attributed to, uh, but it it speaks to the the whole conundrum of trying to reverse engineer when we're talking about you know 1947, and you had this you know alien advanced alien technology, uh, but you ha- have you know the terrestrial science of the day. So the quote is. You know, if you can't plug the thing in, you can't get it to work or, or something to that effect. If you don't know how to plug it in, you're not going to figure out how it works. So talk to me about, you know, the the, the challenges they must have had trying to back engineer, reverse engineer this technology. And what would have been, do you suppose, the procedure?
1: Oh, the procedure, uh, we got it from people who were given the wreckage As to what the procedure was, they um, like there's a fellow his name was Elroy Center. He was a chemical engineer. They said one day they dumped this wreckage on my desk. They said figure out what this stuff is, and so they gave that to various people with different specialties to. and no one knew what the other was doing. See, that's the old compartmentalization, you know. And, uh, so they'd give it to a chemist. They'd give it to a physicist. They'd give it to some different people to try to figure out what made this stuff tick. And that's how they did it. There was no, pro- I mean, there was no procedure for this other than, you know, you can't compare a, a Mitsubishi with a, a, a ship that just traveled through the stars, you know uh but they did their best and we even heard uh, years later that they still hadn't figured out what it was so we are uh, it, it was uh that's that's how they did it they also right up the street was this Patel Memorial Institute it was a combination think tank and metallurgy place they uh, farmed out this memory metal this you, can't cut it, you can't destroy it, and you can wad it up in your hand, and it just floats out there. They gave a contract to the Battelle Memorial Institute in 1948 to figure out what this memory metal was and to try to replicate it. And it took them years to do it. And uh, they came up with something called nitinol.
0: Yes. Dr. Frank Wang.
1: Yes. And... Uh, we had uh, one of our associates interviewed Dr. Wang, and everything was going fine until our interviewer mentioned Roswell. Hmm. <laughs> and boy, the guy couldn't hang up fast enough. And uh, he, there were long paws, and he says, I, I, I won't talk about that, something like that. But that's what they did. They farmed it out to uh, Battelle. We even had another fellow from Lawrence Livermore, another laboratory owned by Battelle out in California. Uh, he even sent, her, sent us a picture of a little piece of this stuff. doesn't look like much. It's just like a little square. And uh, uh, So they did their best, and they came up with something called nitinol. It's a, an amalgam of nickel tit- and titanium. And there's a special processing that goes with it that was pointed out by, uh, General Arthur Exxon, who was the base commander in the mid sixties. He said, uh, someone asked him, well, what's that, what's that stuff made out of? And he says, well, one of the elements is titanium, uh, and I don't know what the other is, but the, the, the processing is different, which turned out to be true. So they put this amalgam of nickel and titanium together. And so you have N-I-T-I and the N-O-L, it's interesting. Uh, the project leader at Battelle farmed out this project also to the Naval Ordnance Lab in Washington. You see the Washington or Maryland. Uh, the Naval Ordnance Lab. So in 1962, instead of having Battelle announce The discovery or the the development of this this uh, self shaped uh, self healing metal, nitinol, the Navy did it, and that's where the N O L it stands for N I nickel T I titanium N O L Naval Ordnance Lab. Actually, what what they did is they laundered the project to the Navy. See, so they didn't the Patel didn't want any. Part of this,
0: any connection to Roswell?
1: Yes, yes. So they laundered it, laundered it to the Navy, and they announced this nitinol. It's not as good as the original. I mean, the original was indestructible, but you can buy it by the sheet, by the roll. You know, you got eyeglasses. The frames are made out of nitinol. Some of them, because it has bendability. And it's based on uh, Roswell Memory Metal.
0: Fantastic. Listen, we'll Type take on. another quick time out, Thomas. We'll come back and uh, talk about some of the other uh, reverse technology projects at Wright Patterson. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us.
1: Listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sack.
0: Back with uh, Thomas Carey, and he is with us for the full two hours talking about UFO secrets inside Wright Patterson Eyewitness Accounts from the Real Area 51. The co author is Don Schmidt, who joined us last week on the program. Thomas, we were talking about uh, Nitinol. Uh, which was reverse-engineered from this um, memory material uh, that I, many of us first heard about from Jesse Marcel Jr., because he remembers his father, Jesse Sr., who was the intelligence officer at the 509, bringing this big box of uh, debris uh, into the kitchen, and he sat down, and he was, I guess, kind of playing with it. He also talked about, of course, the I-beam with those strange hieroglyphics on it, uh, and you talk about sort of the four types of wreckage that were taken to Wright pat uh, we mentioned the memory material uh i just talked about the i-beam uh what else what else what were the other two types
1: uh there was of course there was metal that was unbendable you know very thin unmet, unbendable couldn't destroy it they took a 15 pound sledgehammer to it just bounced off so you had the rigid metal the memory metal, uh, the I beams, and you had things that uh, reminded uh, people of what today we called uh, uh, monofilaments, you know, uh, uh, that, 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 that you send uh, instead of uh, wire, you know, which is like this. I, do I got that right? Monofilaments? Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Or no, a f- like
0: a fiber optic kind fiber,
1: of? Fiber, that's yeah. See, when you get old, uh, Richard, you <laughs> can't come up, um, yeah, fiber optics. Yes, that was the other one. And I may be leaving one or two out, but, uh, I think, I think, uh, Jesse talked about something that was like bakelite, bakelite right. material. And I don't, I don't know what that would be, but, uh, he said it was like bakelite. And uh, that's pretty much most of it was this memory metal. And, of course, there was the, uh, the, the, the inner part of the ship, the inner cabin, we call it, or a, an escape pod. It was an egg-shaped craft, seamless, about the size of a, a Volkswagen Beetle, egg-shaped, that went another 35 miles and came to rest closer to Roswell. So uh, and uh, so that that was when the craft exploded. Everything went to smithereens, and that's what came down on the rancher Mac Brazel's uh, sheep pasture. But the inner cabin or escape pod, we don't know which one it was that survived the the explosion. Whether it was internal or external, we don't know. We speculate that it might have been uh, lightning. A lightning strike. That's speculation, but that came to rest another 35 miles uh, from the debris field. So that's pretty much uh, just thinking about it. We we list we list the different types of wreckage in the book. Yes, and uh, I think that's pretty much.
0: Yeah, I think I think you covered uh, the the four main ones, but of course you and you refer to the memory material as the Holy Grail. Uh,
1: You know why? No. Because any of the other types of uh, wreckage you would have to send out to get it analyzed. And even when, even when it's analyzed and if it comes back that it's otherworldly, oh no, you, you did something wrong. It's not, oh, uh, you know, you know what I mean? Right. But the memory metal, you can say, okay, here's a piece of memory metal. Watch what I do to it. And you hold it up and it, it just unfurls itself and it just floats there. You say, "Oh my goodness, we don't have, we still don't have anything like that. that." So that's why it's the Holy Grail, because you you can tell in an instant that we don't have anything like that. Where the other stuff, you got to send it out, and it's months and months and months, and everybody's forgotten about it. And you say, "Oh, whatever happened to that uh, piece of uh, metal that so and so sent out?" And, So that's why we're looking for the memory metal, not that other stuff. Right, we'll take anything. You know, (laughs) we'll take anything, but the the memory metal is the most. It was the most uh, numerous uh, pieces of wreckage. It was the memory metal, and it's also the easiest to uh, tell that it's really something that we don't have yet.
0: Uh, at, At what point and in what capacity did Yuri Geller get involved?
1: Oh my goodness Yuri Geller uh, the, the mentalist uh, they conducted uh, this was in the uh, uh, Dr. Wang I believe was in charge of this uh, He was trying to I, it had to do with the, the the memory metal and whether they could activate uh, mentally. This uh, this memory metal in some way either make it bend or something like that. It was and uh, Doctor Wang actually admitted that uh, he had uh, Yuri uh, Yuri Geller uh, in for this uh, project, but he, he absolutely didn't want to talk about it. But the idea was that the ship maybe was was piloted or driven by some sort of mental activity, uh, rather than a, a shifter, you know, and a sh- steering wheel that it was all mental. And, uh, that, that wasn't the chapter I wrote, but th- that's, <laughs> that's, 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 uh, pretty much, uh, uh, Yuri Geller was involved in that, uh, from the, with the, with the Dr. Wang project. And, uh, I don't know what became of it. Uh, but it, the idea of, uh, you know maybe the ship was maybe it was all mental is something that people consider.
0: Right. You mentioned the nitinol which you know was a reverse engineering as best we could as you put it of the uh, this memory material. Uh then we had these rumors that things like uh you know transistors we had transistor radios. Uh there there didn't seem to be any sort of transition between the vacuum tube and these transistor radios. So some people speculated that was a a gift from the Roswell UFO crash. Things like uh well you we mentioned fiber optic cable, night vision binoculars. Uh, how likely? Jet, jet how like, Yeah. How likely <laughs> is that, given the fact that again, you know, such a conundrum trying to apply 1940s terrestrial science to this advanced technology.
1: Well, here, here's the thing, Richard is. Uh, I hate to say uh, that uh, armed conflict, uh, uh, i.e., wars. There's a benefit. There's, so One of the benefits of war, and I hate to use that term, is that there are new developments in all of these areas. Uh, not necessarily what we're talking about, but new things are developed. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, I had an operation some years ago uh, called a colostomy where they take part of your large intestine out. I had a Perforated, uh, uh, what do you call them things? Uh, diverticulum. I would have died, but the, it's, it came from the battlefield. Wounded soldiers that were 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 uh, shot in the, you know, they have, you punctured their large intestine, so they would cut out the part that was, you know, damaged, and they tap back together again, and uh, that came from war, so there are things that come from uh, developed during uh, wars now, 1947 you two years post World War II uh, things like transistors and all that stuff it's, in my view anyway, it, it's uh, I'm not discounting it, but it's speculation um Whereas, for me, the nitinol, again, there was no history whatsoever of any studies of self-healing metal, shape-shifting metal, prior to after the Roswell crash with this memory metal. But things like uh, Kevlar, even Velcro, they say, oh, Velcro came from the Roswell crash, Um uh, night, night vision goggles, and I'm thinking, like, oh my goodness, uh, I don't, I, I there's just not enough, uh, for me, uh, substantiation for those things, uh, it, you know, you can speculate, uh, but there, there has to be more, more, more substantive, uh, evidence of that at least for me
0: alright Thomas we'll take another quick time out we'll come back begin hour two we'll talk about Colonel Philip Corso the day after Roswell we'll talk about Operation Paperclip Werner Von Braun comes to write pat back with more of my conversation with Thomas Carey right here on The Conspiracy Show stay with us